0: Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. Welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I in I Think You're Interesting. And when The Simpsons first came on the air... In 1990, as as like a regular TV show, and Simpsons Mania overtook the country, and children everywhere were buying T-shirts of, you know, Bart Simpson saying, don't have a cow, man, and all these other things. I was not allowed to watch the program, which, if you've listened to the show before, you know is my favorite TV show of all time, but I was not allowed to watch. My parents felt that the characters were too disrespectful, and I did not need to be learning that sass. So there were these many years in which I knew the Simpsons existed and I knew a significant amount of information about the show, but I hadn't seen a moment of it. But what I did know was that Lisa Simpson was my member of the Simpson family, the one that I felt the strongest kinship with, which is weird because, again, I'd never seen it. I didn't know what her voice sounded like. I didn't know anything like that. I just knew that she was roughly the same age as me when the show debuted and that she played the saxophone, which I also played, and that she, you know, felt sort of out of place, as I frequently did. And of course, that's like the archetype of the character. I think that everybody who's sort of a tortured, brooding writer from a very young age identifies with Lisa Simpson. But that's why I'm excited that this week on the show we have Yardley Smith. She's the voice Of Lisa Simpson. And of course we talked about Lisa, but we also talked about her true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks, which is a lot of fun. And we talked about like true crime in general, what draws her to it, what she thinks draws other people to it. And if you've ever wanted to hear the voice of Lisa Simpson describing like horrific bloody things, my friends this is the episode for you. But we're not just going to talk about crime, we're going to talk about The Simpsons, we're going to talk about her other projects, and we're going to just talk about being one of the most famous people on Earth, and yet, you know, not necessarily being one of the most famous people on Earth at the same time. It's a lot of fun if you're a Simpsons fan, or just a person who knows what The Simpsons look like, which is everybody on Earth, including eight-year-old me. Stick around, you're going to have a good time. My guest today is Yardley Smith. You may know her as the voice of Lisa Simpson. You also might know her from her podcast, Small Town Dicks, which she co-hosts with Zibby Smith. Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, uh, Zibby Allen. With
0: Zibby Allen. I knew it was a common last name. <laughs> <laughs> with Zibby Allen. Uh, Yardley, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So Small Town Dicks is a true crime thing. There's, you know, There's a lot of interest in true crime, and I'd like to ask you- where your interest comes from, but then also maybe speculate as to like why we as a culture seem like really into this and perpetually. It's not like a new thing. We've been doing this for 50 years, you know?
1: That's really true. I think um, on the broader scale, I think as human beings, we love heroes. Mm -hmm. We really want the good guys to win for the most part. A lot of our movies are predicated on that. The superhero movies couldn't be bigger Mm -hmm. than they are right now, you know? And for me personally, and I think this actually plays in perhaps to the global interest in true crime, is every crime is about a breach of trust. Sure. And so I was a really good kid. And I never broke any rules. I was very Lisa Simpson-like in that regard. (laughs) I was going to say. And um, not nearly as smart, but definitely as well-behaved. And uh, (laughs) I'm sort of at this later point in my life, certainly not when I was sort of eight or nine, but I was fascinated by the kids who had the balls to play hooky. Mm -hmm. And then you take that to the obvious extreme, you know, to murder or rape or any of the other horrific things that people do to each other. And... I think there's a a great fascination about what is it about those people who do those things that leads them from, I wish I could, you know, I've been done wrong. Mm -hmm. I want to hurt the person who did that to me. There's a great distance between that thought and the actual action, Mm -hmm. except not always. And those are the people I think who end up on the news.
0: Do you, you said you were a well-behaved child. I was also a well-behaved child. Do you recognize those impulses within yourself like do you recognize that they're there because I have very rarely in my life felt that like oh I could do something really terrible right now if I didn't have you know myself holding me back you know
1: yes I think I never had the thought that I could do something terrible to somebody else but I think when the very core level of trust is broken Mm -hmm society can't function without some level of trust. And there was a really interesting article about a month ago or a couple months ago in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or something, and they, I think they referred to trust as a currency. Sure. So with things like Airbnb and Lyft and Uber those businesses don't thrive unless you're willing to get into a complete stranger's car. Mm-hmm. And while you used to do that when you get into a taxi or onto a bus, you sort of had this notion that those people had been vetted.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: these are complete, who knows where this person came from, mm-hmm. right? And so the currency of trust, I think, is in our lives ever more,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, even more than it, it was when we were growing up and I'm older than you, so I'm just sort of fascinated by the people who don't value that. Mm -hmm. It's the same as people who don't place any value on life. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I don't understand that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> to be clear, when I said I, I recognized myself as capable of terrible things, I meant like I meant like what? international jewel thievery. Like I was like, oh, Yeah, you know, sure.
1: See, well to that okay, to that point I always thought I would actually probably be a really good smuggler mm-hmm. because I would have one really good crime. Yeah. Because of all the kinds of parts i played in my career as an actress, people they always welcome me with open arms. Right, they feel really safe with me. They feel really warmly towards me. I go up to TSA at the airport, and they're like, "Oh my God, it's you!" <laughs> right, I yeah. could get away with some shit, dude. <laughs> so, yes, in that regard, hundred percent. Why not? Let's just do one one big heist together.
0: Yes, I'll get the I'll get the exotic birds. Uh, you get the suitcase. We'll figure it out.
3: Perfect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so I, I I really enjoy Small Town Dicks, what, what I've heard of it. Um, and it's different from some of the other true crime podcasts out there. And I'd like to sort of hear you tell us what sets it apart, like what, what makes it a different show.
1: I think for us um- – Certainly in the podcast space, less in the television space, all of our cases are told by the detectives who investigated them. Mm -hmm. And Zibi and I are, we're like the Greek chorus. We're the audience. We're you. If you had an opportunity and the guts to ask the questions, we ask those questions. Sure. So we actually don't do very much talking. Mm -hmm. We really, really want the stories to stand on their own. And we also, when we had this idea, we had this notion that it would be, as opposed to being a really free-form podcast, it would be sort of highly curated, much like This American Life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We had no idea how much work that would be.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> this American Life, you know, it's supported by Chicago Public Radio. They've got a staff of 30 people. Yeah. We are a staff of four. Yeah. So, it's... If- <laughs> It's a lot more heavy lifting than we expected, but yeah. it's incredibly gratifying. Yeah. And one of the things that we hear both from our fans, how much and how much they appreciate how well produced it is. But we also hear from our detectives how cathartic it is and how grateful they are to have a light shone on really good police work. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that is just an unexpected uh, benefit from the whole thing.
0: You know, that's kind of an interesting thing because uh, I, I've done a number of podcasts now and people, I think, think it sounds easier than it is.
1: Oh, I, th- I mean, of course we did. <laughs> <laughs> we should have come to you, Todd. Yeah, when I no,
0: when I launched the show, I was like, what do we need? We need a couple microphones. Maybe we need somebody to like make sure the microphones are on. Right. And that's it. But no, like we have, like I read the credits at the end. We have like a logo designer. We have sound engineers. We have, you know, so it, yeah, but.
1: It's It's a thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) So what have you learned? Like, were you somebody who was, like, sort of the naturally curious type who becomes an interviewer before you launch the show? Or have you, like, had to sort of teach yourself interviewing skills?
1: I was always naturally curious. And I'm also incredibly shy. So when I would go onto a set and I felt always completely out of place, even though they had invited me to be there, right, Mm -hmm. as an actress— my way in, the way I would make myself feel comfortable was to ask whoever was standing next to me what their name was, where they were from, how did they get the job, you know. And so. And I was genuinely interested because I believe that everybody has a story. Even if everybody thinks their own story is not that interesting, Mm -hmm. every one of those people is wrong. (laughs) So your story of where you're from, how you came to do this podcast— the things that you love, the things that you realize you don't love, all of that to me is so fascinating. Yeah. And that is even just it's one grain on the entire sand beach of mm-hmm. who you are. Yeah, And so um, it came quite naturally, I think, to both Zibby and I. Mm-hmm. And we also, though, so Dan and Dave, the two twin detectives, identical twin detectives who co-host Small Town Dicks with us, They have been incredibly generous with their stories, Mm -hmm. and also they give us an authenticity that Zibi and I couldn't manufacture if we tried. No matter how charming and uh, welcoming we are, we couldn't cold call a detective in a small town somewhere that we don't live, that we have no connection to, and expect them to come on the show. But Dan and Dave have a much better chance of getting that man or woman to come on our show because they speak the same language and they share a common experience. So all of those things, I, I do feel a little bit like it's lightning in a bottle.
0: You mentioning um, that you think everybody's story is interesting, like the name of the show, I think you're interesting. I sort of like when we launched it, I joked, (laughs) we could have like anybody on because I think everybody's interesting. Like We could could pull random people off the street. It turns out people like to listen more than somebody they've heard of, (laughs) but (laughs) um, you know, theoretically.
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, sometimes I think perhaps to that point, it it can be hard to get people to loosen up enough to tell you something, Mm -hmm. but- my theory is is that if you can get them to teach you something about mm-hmm. themselves so they don't feel like, well, because this is your show, you're more in the know than I am,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that sometimes works. But we have had um, detectives who are so well-versed in their job and as soon as you put the microphone in front of them, they're really not that comfortable. Right. And it's been a lot. Actually, our hearts go out to them. It seems to have been a lot harder for them than we would have liked, but we still got a terrific story.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you say that you were doing that on on sets, just sort of talking to whoever you were saying next to or whatever, you've worked with some big names, some big people. Have you ever felt like, have you ever been in a situation where you were like, felt kind of intimidated to be there? Oh (laughs) my God.
1: I mean, all the time,
0: Yeah, really. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: When I remember doing um, City Slickers with Mm. uh, Billy Crystal and we were between takes. I was only there for a day, I think, to do that one scene. And I remember standing next to him while they were moving the camera and, you know, my go-to of like, hey, so basically tell me about yourself without putting it quite in such broad terms, I uh, absolute clam. Mm, I just thought, oh, fuck, now what? (laughs) What do I do? Like, uh, well, I know who you are. Um, And yes, I always feel like the ugly orphan child or something. I don't know. I just feel like, (laughs) oh, no, you're going to find out I don't really belong.
0: And what's your name? Billy, right? Yeah. Is that what you said? Is that what they call you?
1: (laughs) You go by Billy? Yeah. That's cool. Is that short for what? William, maybe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I met, um, we had Benedict Cumberbatch at the read-through for The Simpsons. Um, He was actually on the show probably a year and a half ago, maybe even two years ago. But he came to a read-through first. Mm -hmm. It was when the first series of Sherlock Holmes was on. Sure. And I was absolutely starstruck and just... Was just a big dumb goof. Like, hey, oh my god, it's so happy to meet you. You know, <laughs> i sure. And luckily, he's a huge fan. But I'm sure he thought, who is this moron? Who is this moron girl? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, one of the things I kind of think about with, um, we're in we're in a moment in American culture when we're talking about abuses by law enforcement. Yes. and when you're doing storytelling about law enforcement, whether that's true crime, whether that's like a TV show, you know, set in the FBI, something like that, you kind of have to navigate how you're going to approach that question. So, like, what conversations have you folks had about, like, how to present stories responsibly about law enforcement that, you know, reflect the good that they do, like the the good things they do, but also, like, don't validate the worst sides that we've heard about, you know? Sure. Mm -hmm.
1: In every profession, there are always people who don't represent that profession well at Mm -hmm. all and some in the worst light possible. And Mm -hmm. certainly we've seen that with some of the shootings that people catch on their phones from law enforcement. But I will say, and I do genuinely believe this in my heart, really about people for the most part, that there are more good cops than there are bad cops. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't our part of our mandate to like, uh, present a counterbalance to the national conversation about police brutality.
2: Right.
1: And I guess to that point, we actually have a couple of cases in our two seasons so far that showcase bad policemen. Mm. Uh, One was on the force for 10 years and was a serial sexual abuser. Mm. And it's called The Sociopath and the Whistleblower. And it's at the end of season one. And it's, it will you know, it will just raise the hair on your head. It is really, really harrowing. Mm. And the... Lieutenant who investigated that policeman was a colleague of his and his biases leaned more toward, I'm going to believe, my colleague and not these women he was abusing who were more or less on the fringe for mm. the most part. And he had a complete about face. Mm. And so our detectives are very specific and really... What do I want to say? They're very by the book. So in order not to violate somebody's rights, I have to check all of these boxes. Mm. That means that in order to get a search warrant signed, it takes hours. If it's in the middle of the night, I'm going to have to wake up the judge. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to go to their house. I'm going to have to explain the case. I'm going to have to wait to see if they— think that it's worthy of them signing the search warrant, that I'm going to have to come back. I mean, it's the detail is micro. Right. And so we're really pleased and proud that as one of the unexpected byproducts is that we actually are able to showcase police work at its finest and as it should be. And all of our cops say that... They appreciate the public and the system imposing checks and balances on them.
2: Mm -hmm. That
1: they have the ability to take away somebody's freedom, possibly for the rest of their life, Mm -hmm. right? To build a case that ultimately a jury will weigh in on. And they don't take that lightly. And therefore, they absolutely should be held to the highest standard.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that I I like about the show because I have a lot of true crime podcast I listen to where I feel like there's not that requisite level of skepticism, I guess, at law enforcement's behavior sometimes, you right. know, where they'll be like, what to me feels like a clear civil rights violation, they'll just sort of gloss it over. <laughs> sure. and like, I like that episode you mentioned at the end of season one, like yes. does really dig into that question of like, how do you do something when the police officer is the one who's in the wrong, you know, and I think right. that's a fascinating tension.
1: Yes, thank you. And also we Are very, and this actually comes easily to treat these cases with the reverence and respect that they deserve, considering Mm -hmm. the crimes that have been committed. And really, any crime. I mean, Dan investigates a case in. I think it's, I can't remember. I think it's season one where it was a robbery. It was a home invasion robbery. And he put together all these dots in order to catch these people who had basically left no clues. Mm, Right. mm -hmm. And that isn't somebody being murdered or a child being abused, but it is still a horrible crime for the person to whom it happened. And the way Dan had to go through, you know, he had to get search warrants and he had to look at video and he had to do surveillance. And it's just, it's old-time detective work. But those cases deserve as much reverence as a horrible case that we did called Unspeakable, Mm. which is a really harrowing case of child abuse. Mm -hmm. And again, that case is as much about the detective work and how they were going to right the wrong, albeit somewhat too late. But the law changed because of that case Mm. in this particular state. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, Zibi and I are absolutely wrapped by all of these stories and we change all the names. We often change relationships. We do whatever we can. We even put disclaimers in our opening credits that say... We realize that some of you may recognize these cases, but we hope that you'll join us in protecting the identities for the sake of the victims and their families. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes even that doesn't work, but you do what you can.
0: Let me ask sort of about the flip side of that, which is there is a real concern in a lot of true crime storytelling that people are making it too fun, you know, but you need to like, you can't just have it be a dirge through the worst of human behavior because that gets very (laughs) off-putting. So how do you find that balance between keeping it engaging, but also like being respectful of what happened?
1: I, you know, there's nothing fun about the crime, but the detectives, by their own admission, they imbue a lot of gallows humor into their lives because they see the worst of humanity all day, every day. And so we're very judicious about the gallows humor because I also feel like if you can't see somebody's body language when they're speaking, you can't get a sense of their energy, you can't see their facial expressions, obviously, then only hearing something can seem very black and white, but we are by no means opposed to the funny things that happen. Like even in that horrible case, unspeakable, Detective Don, who is the retired detective who investigated that case, and it was quite a few years ago, 20 years or so ago, talks about a moment where he's talking to a colleague of his who was at the autopsy of this child and this guy was known for being really understated, uh, not very expressive, and Don is like, okay, uh, all right, uh, noted and got the details that he needed, then... A few hours later, he went back to the station. He looks at the photos. He goes, holy fuck, Al, what do you mean it's bad? It's like the worst thing I've ever seen, right? And it's a moment where we all laughed because Don's surprise at Al's understatement after the fact was, I think, a moment of release, but also you go, right, you know, we're all human beings. Yeah. And you cope the way you can cope. So we actually have moments of levity in our podcast despite the... (laughs) the horror. Mm. And our fans have often written about how much they appreciate that. Yeah, There's actually an episode coming up. It's episode three in season three, and it's called Interstate. Mm. And it has everything from soup to nuts. It has the crime. It has great detective work. It has an extradition Mm. and the comedy that comes with the extradition. And then it has a really poignant... Uh, denouement at the end where Detective Dave says I ask him a question actually if this suspect is compliant and he's not giving you any trouble and he's in handcuffs why do you feel uneasy sitting next to him? Because you're a seasoned detective and he's not giving you any trouble and he gives a great answer which mm. I'm not going to tell you. Oh,
0: no spoilers. <laughs> uh, um, uh, so you've kind of traveled all over the country doing this show because you go to some of these small towns we do. To, to look into the stuff. So What have you learned from traveling around the country? Like, did you travel a lot before this? Or are you getting to see parts of the country you've never seen before?
1: Yes. So I grew up on the East Coast in Washington, D.C., and I live in Los Angeles. So my travel mostly was over the middle of the country. Mm -hmm. I've worked in Texas and Louisiana. I worked in Wisconsin. But I have by no means seen all of our country. And I'm really always struck by how welcoming people are Mm -hmm. for the most part. And again, if you lead with um, I am by no means trying to cast myself as the smartest person in the room, mm-hmm. then even uh, if they've heard of me, even if they know The Simpsons, even if they know they consider me a celebrity, that disarms them at least to a point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I live by those words. Like, I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I only want to do what I do well. And then you all, everybody else, you guys bring all that other good stuff to the table. And with that, we can make a really good pie.
0: Mm -hmm. What's uh, what's a town you've traveled to that you've been really taken with where you were like, I can't tell you. Oh, you can't. Yeah,
1: because we never say any of the places. Oh, right, right, right. Sure. And we don't even give the names of the last names of our detectives. Okay. Um, so, and, and we did that, uh, consciously, obviously, partly, largely to protect mm-hmm. the victims, but also, uh, most of these detectives are still working mm-hmm. and we don't want them ever to be on the stand testifying in a case that they worked on and have a defense attorney go, oh, you're part of that fucking podcast, right? <laughs> that, uh, small town dicks where they glorify crime mm-hmm. and you, you know, and look, you don't have to dig very far to find out who they are, sure. perhaps where these crimes take place, but that's not the most important part. The most important part is how do all these lives that have never met for the most part intersect?
0: Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smart water, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Before we get back to the show, let's listen to a quick message from our friends at Eater's Start to Sail. Hi, this is Erin Patinkin, CEO of Ovenly. And I'm Natasha Case, CEO of Coolhouse. And, and together, we're, we're the co-hosts, co-hosts of Start, Start to sale. sale. We talk to entrepreneurs about what it takes to build a business from launch to exit. We'll really talk about the experience in the trenches, the most valuable lessons learned to get them out of there. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our show today. And thanks to Smartwater for being the founding sponsor of Start to Sail. I want to ask about some other things, but first I got to ask, this is a thing I probably could have Googled because I'm sure you've answered it before, but <laughs> I have to ask about your name and where it um, comes from.
1: Yes, my name, uh, Yardley, is my my father's dead now, but it was my father's middle name. Okay. He was Joseph Yardley Smith, mm-hmm. and Yardley's actually uh, my third of three first names, so it was Martha Maria Yardley Smith. Martha is my mother's first name. Maria is uh, an ancestor mm-hmm. somewhere on my mother's side, actually. And I actually, after 9 11, mm-hmm. because your driver's license and your passport, now everything has to match. Mm-hmm. I dropped the first two first names. Mm -hmm. I dropped Martha Maria, so I'm just Yardley Smith now. Because you used to have a driver's license that just said Yardley Smith Mm -hmm. and a passport that said Martha Maria Yardley Smith. And the reason I have my driver's license is only Yardley Smith is because when I first started out as an actress, I used to put all my names on my W-4 and then they would make the check out to Martha Smith, who's my mother, and then I couldn't cash it. (laughs) So that didn't work out so well. So um, then I started not using those names at all on the W-4 and it didn't matter because... If you had the social security number, of course, you could go like, oh, obviously, and Yardley's such an unusual name. Mm-hmm. Everything was good. Then, after nine eleven, all that changed. And so probably 10 years ago, I officially dropped the first two.
0: I was going to say that when you're going to get your SAG card, you know, probably <laughs> Martha or Maria, like, yeah. yeah, are a lot more common. Yeah. So that, that at least you had that. It worked out. Yeah. And
1: look, if you're going to have Smith <laughs> as a last name, yeah. you better have something <laughs> sort of interesting in front of it. <laughs>
0: So, The Simpsons just started its 30th season. Yes. And I want to ask you where Lisa Simpson. I I actually had, Nancy was on the show, Nancy Cartwright was on the show a year ago, and I sort of got into her with her where Bart lives in her voice Mm. and where she lives. And like, where do you see Lisa sort of living in your voice uh, as opposed to actually your voice?
1: Oh, well, this is me. This is Lisa Simpson. Mm
0: -hmm. It's not
1: that far. Mm -hmm. And Nancy, she studied voiceover. Mm -hmm. She's. Much more skilled than I am at that. I got the job because I had been doing a play in Hollywood mm-hmm. in a tiny what we call a black box theater here which we have a lot of equity waiver theaters here which means that you have if you have 99 seats or less equity kind of gives that theater a pass mm-hmm. and back in the day this was would have been back in like 86 in an equity waiver production you literally got paid nothing
3: mm-hmm.
1: no exact not like oh $5 that's not no like nothing <laughs> you know you see so you did it for the love of it although in Los Angeles I always feel like there's often an ulterior motive where <sighs> maybe I'll get discovered yeah. because theater doesn't have the same weight here mm-hmm. that it does in New York. Doesn't mean that there isn't good theater here. People don't send me hateful Twitter messages. There's terrific There's theater. There's terrific yeah. theater here. It just is a different focus here. So anyway, I was doing this play called Living on Salvation Street, mm-hmm. which was a really fun play. And I was playing a teenager who liked to sing Elvis Presley songs and wanted to join the army. Mm-hmm. And I think about 19 people saw that play. (laughs) But one of them, a year later, would cast The Simpsons on The Tracy Allman Show. Mm -hmm. And she tells me that she knew immediately who should play Lisa Simpson. Although I was originally first brought in to read for Bart. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that was calculated. I think that was, we always have women do the voices of young boys because our voices don't change. Mm -hmm. Let's bring Yardley Smith in. She can read for Bart, Lisa. It doesn't matter. Just... You know, whatever. It wasn't well thought out. Whereas Nancy, because she read for Lisa too, mm-hmm. and but she already knew she wanted to play Bart.
0: Yeah, she said that. Yeah, that that she just was sort of drawn yes. to him. And were Were you drawn to Lisa in a similar way, or was it just like this is? This
1: Lisa is didn't really have a personality in those shorts mm. that we did on the. Tracy Ellen show. She really was just a brat. We were Mm. both brats, Mm -hmm. me and Bart, and she was really a foil for him. He was the star of those shorts, and I am a younger sister, so I'm like, well, I know know how to do that. (laughs) That's no problem. Um, So it wasn't until we went to Half Hour that James L. Brooks, our executive producer, said, I want Lisa Simpson to be a genius, Mm -hmm. and I want her to play the saxophone. Mm. And that's when Lisa really started to become a person. Mm. And, you know, she, I feel like she's quite separate from me. Mm -hmm. I feel like she exists wholly in her own right. Mm -hmm. And it's not unlike knowing somebody most of your life like you would know a really good friend. Mm -hmm. And when that show is over, it will be like my best friend moved away and is never coming back.
0: That's really sad. It
1: will be really sad. I, Todd, will be in a fetal position on the bathroom floor, perhaps for weeks. (laughs) Please send food.
0: (laughs) I will. I will. Well, one thing that's sort of interesting about that is she is, I mean, she's a very mature eight-year-old, but she's forever eight, and like... um, I assume that you age. I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe we're going to find out you don't. I do.
1: (laughs) I do have a portrait in my attic, but I feel like it's not working as well as I
0: would like. How has, I guess, how has sort of your relationship to playing a kid like changed over the years? You know,
1: it's been incredibly cathartic. Again, another unexpected byproduct of something that I've done in my life. It's also true that Lisa Simpson is the catharsis for all of our writers Mm. who were super smart geniuses who had no idea where they fit in when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And so they work out all of their childhood angst with Lisa Simpson. For me, I feel like Lisa has a resilience that... I really struggled to master as Mm. a child. Mm -hmm. She comes to it so easily. She bounces back much more quickly than I did. I was just really, I was an anxious kid, and I didn't have sort of clinical anxiety, but I worried all the time. I'm still a terrible worrier. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be good at everything. Mm -hmm. And I was a perfectionist, which is, by the way, for any young listeners, that is a zero-sum game. You will never win. Mm -hmm. Don't even go down that road. I mean, I'm still trying,
0: but...
1: You know, and I do too, where I set the bar, I think sometimes unreasonably high, but now I sort of chuckle at it and think, well, that's pretty fantastic. Let's see Mm -hmm. if we can touch that bar. And I say now, for instance, that the rejection that we get in show business, it's not that it doesn't affect me anymore. I just recover from it more quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm more like Lisa Simpson now than I certainly was when I was eight.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: often said that I wish I had been like Lisa Simpson when I was eight.
0: I think we I mean don't we all? Don't we yeah. all? Don't <laughs> <Yeah>. we all? <laughs> I wish I had been the voice of reason for my entire community when I was yes. eight years old. <laughs> That would have been great. Um. It would
1: have been good. I know, rats.
0: So you mentioned you mentioned that you were not a trained voice actor in the way that some of the others in the cast right. are. What have you learned about voice acting from doing this for as long as you have?
1: It's not that different from acting in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any less emotion. Mm. Um, somehow people think like, oh, I, you know, I'm a celebrity and I'm doing a feature film. I'm slumming it. Mm. And you're like, Really? I actually don't think of it that way. I I mean, obviously, you can't see me when I'm doing Lisa Simpson, and I can't move away from the microphone, but those are the only real differences. Mm-hmm. I don't feel any less. I don't feel any less deeply. I don't care any less about what's happening to her. If somebody does something to Lisa Simpson that I don't think is fair or I don't like, I feel a moral obligation to stand up for my girl. Mm-hmm. I will fight for my character.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Again, it's not so much whether or not I win that fight, but if I don't fight that fight, I can't sleep. Mm. So for me, voice acting, and because I don't have the range, for instance, that Nancy has or Dan Castellaneta or, you know, Hank Azaria, Harry Shearer, I don't get asked to do other voices really, on other shows. And uh, that's okay, Mm -hmm. because I never actually wanted to do voiceover. Mm -hmm. I think I did before I started doing Lisa Simpson, sort of looked down my nose at it a little bit like, that's not really acting. Mm -hmm. But I have certainly come to have a completely different 180 appreciation for the process and what it takes and what's I want to imbue my character with.
0: Do you remember in the early going, if there were scenes or stories where you really sort of learned how to convey that level of emotion through just your voice and then trust that the animators would capture it in performance?
1: I don't remember a a moment like that. I remember, for instance, in season two, we did an episode called Lisa's Substitute, where they actually flew me to New York with James L. Brooks to record with Dustin Hoffman, Mm. who plays Lisa's Substitute teacher. And it's a wonderful episode. And we took all day to record that episode. And Dustin Hoffman was phenomenal, and he did... There was so much ad-libbing, and the tragedy is, is that it was still only a 22-minute show, <laughs> and none of it made it in there. But I cried so much for so many hours in that recording when Lisa Simpson cried in those scenes. Mm. And I didn't know how else to do it. Yeah, And so I just... I'm not unlike a pet. Unless you give me a correction, I'm like, okay, so that we're good. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. okay, great. Mm. Let's go to the next thing. Um, I, I don't think you should overthink the process too much. I'm not. I never had acting lessons, so again, I don't have a really uh, methodical process about how I get to where I get. But I also believe that not every actor is good at every part, mm. and I think that should be okay. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I think that, I mean, for all I know, Daniel Day-Lewis is a brilliant sitcom actor. We'll probably never know that. But if he's not, that's okay. He's still one of the best actors of our generation, right? Mm. So, you know, dance with the one that brung
0: you. The Daniel Day-Lewis show is filmed before a live studio audience. Exactly. it be so good. Come on. It'd be great.
1: Wouldn't it? It <laughs> would be awesome. i tune in for that.
0: <laughs> well, uh, kind of let me ask you, like, I'm thinking about you've done a lot of on camera work. And when I hear your voice, I'm like, oh, there's Yardley Smith, you know? Even if I even if you're in heavy makeup or something, you know?
1: <laughs> like, I always me, look exactly the same. You, you know. I am never disguised.
0: Todd. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about kind of navigating that. Um, because that's sort of like I guess, you know, we're all used to actors being in multiple different roles, but tell me about navigating that path of like your voice is so recognizable. Yes. You know?
1: It's interesting. To your comment about you were used to seeing actors in multiple roles and different disguises, that's rare air. If you're one of those actors who gets to play those parts, or I think if you're an older male actor, you have many more opportunities to do that. They're less... Uh, eager, at least in the past, I think, to transform women unless you are the superstar and you're going for the Oscar, right? Mm -hmm. And so I haven't had a lot of opportunities like that, so, yes, I definitely think that Lisa Simpson has probably kept me from other parts mm. because my voice is so distinctive. I did a tiny little thing on Mad Men, which I loved doing because I was a huge fan. And mm-hmm. I had won a few lines with John Hamm. And I remember getting to the set that day and Matthew Weiner said, Yardley, it's so fantastic to see you. I'm such a huge fan. I wanted to give you a bigger part, but you're not a blender. I'm like, great, great I think. Ooh. So, yes, there will be people who can't ever get over me being Lisa Simpson. But the other thing I get, which— I still get, and has really always surprised me, is people think I don't want to work. Mm. Because I have this great job, because versions of our salaries have been published for years and years and years, people feel like, why would you want to come down for your castle? And I literally had a producer describe it to me that way. Mm -hmm. And it was, I did a, a fabulous recurring role on Dharma and Greg for five years. I played Marlene I played Greg's crabby secretary, and I loved that part, and they were so good to me. And I only did a couple of shows a year for the most part. And after that show was canceled, I did a one-woman show, which I did in New York and Los Angeles, and one of the producers, executive producers, came to see me, and we had lunch a couple of days later, and he said, Yardley, you know, we loved you, you were so brilliant, you always delivered, we always wanted to have you on more, but we were sure you didn't want to come down from your castle, and I was gobsmacked. Mm. I almost stabbed him with my fork. (laughs) I was like, how could you not even ask? I mean, you could just ask, and I would tell you if I didn't want to come down from my castle. But uh, since then, and that was many like twelve years ago, that is definitely a recurring theme, which is why I started a production company, because I'm like, I can't wait. Mm. You know, I what about my soul? And people are like, I don't really give a shit about your soul. Um, so I have this production company called Paperclip Limited with my business partner Ben Cornwell. And our premise is that we take projects across all mediums at their earliest stages and develop them. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, The Simpsons being the greatest job in the world we have a budget, so mm-hmm. we are able to actually say yes first when in we live in a town and work in an industry where yes is almost the worst word you can say. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to say yes first. Mm-hmm. Once one person says yes, the yeses may fall like, you know, dominoes, but God help you if you can get a yes first. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, tell us about your castle. Um, I- <laughs> no. No, I, I do, like, I do. you did mention earlier that, like, you could be a smuggler because people hear sure. your voice and stuff. So, totally like, could. what 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 are some of the door? Like, what are some of the moments when you like you know walk up to like a grocery grocery store clerk or something? And oh yeah, and like, does that sort of happen? Oh
1: yeah, happens mm-hmm. happens especially in the small towns, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it doesn't happen as much now. But I used to have people hug me in the supermarket all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I was in Las Vegas a few years ago, and I, because I used to make shoes, I used to have an a, Italian shoe line mm. for five years. And all the two big shoe conventions are both in it's the same convention, but it's twice a year in Las Vegas. So Ben and I would go, my I'm still now business partner, he is a man of uh, jack of all trades, master of many. <laughs> We're literally walking down a hallway in one of the hotels. Uh, going from one end to the other. And this woman just threw out her arms, pulled me into her giant bosom, and said, oh, my God, I love you. And then turned to her entire family, most of whom were grown ups, like, do you know who this is? And they're like, yes, we do. And she recognized me from the legend of Billie Jean. Okay. And then it was 10 minutes of photos, and and it's hilarious. And what I'll say about that is... The Simpsons is the best door opener of any job you could possibly think of. Mm. So that pretty much everywhere I go, complete strangers are happy to see me.
2: Mm.
1: Not a lot of people can say that.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah. And so
1: while some people might be like, you know, it's a little off-putting to be hugged by strangers— I didn't mind then mm-hmm. in that moment it was lovely and funny and welcoming and I just thought she was great
0: mm-hmm. my my strategy in this show is that like I'll I'll be listening to what you're saying and being like, okay I have some questions I want to ask but then I'll try and pull stuff out and be like and like every answer you give is like she had an Italian shoe line and yes. it's just like <laughs> there's so many ways I could go but
1: yes I, well my motto is screw it let's do it so that's all you have to know
0: <laughs> I do want I do want to return to something you said earlier which is that you didn't go. To acting school. So I kind of want to find out how you got into the career you're in. How, what's what's your origin story?
1: Um, I knew I wanted to be an actor from the age of about five or seven. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman in my neighborhood in Washington, D.C. who used to do these. They weren't musicals. We, she would just gather all the kids together in her garage, which she'd made into a little stage. And she would dress us up in costumes. And then we would lip sync to things like The Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. And um, fiddler on the roof. And she would also do these things called living portraits, which Mm. if you probably know what those are. So I was a portrait by Mary Cassatt, the Mm. girl in the straw hat. And I, I mean, it felt like 10 minutes, but it was probably, you know, 30 seconds. And I'd stand in the middle of the stage with a spotlight on me. But I remember the first time being backstage and she had a little curtain and my knees knocking And the curtain pulled back, and the audience was so close, because it's a garage, people. Mm -hmm. You know, kids are sitting, like, inches from you. And as soon as the spotlight hit my face, my knee stopped knocking. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, oh, this, oh, this seems good. (laughs) This seems like a solution of some kind. (laughs) Um, And then I just started doing school plays uh, from the time I was about in fifth grade, and One of the things that I love, I love theater. It's my first love because you really fly by the seat of your pants. You get on that train and you can't get off until it gets to its absolute destination. If you can't remember your line in the middle of the scene, you better fucking figure a way out of it because nobody's going to come and help you. And there's something about that adrenaline and the connection with the audience when it's going well and when it's not, how are you going to navigate that? Because that's so much harder. That I really, really, really love. And... I remember, um, I'm sorry, I was looking at your logo and I completely (laughs) lost my train of thought.
0: No, that's fine. It's a nice logo.
1: It is a nice logo. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. So one of the things that I always loved about theater and then later film and television was it was very comforting to me being an an anxious soul to know how everything was going to turn out. Mm. So you knew the end at the beginning, And even if it was bad, you could prepare yourself. Mm. And you could then freely take the journey through the story because you knew where it was going to end up. Mm. And that really appealed to my sense of wanting to be in control.
0: Do you still struggle with that anxiousness as an adult or was it a childhood thing that you kind of—
1: I do. I feel like my social anxiety is more acute. Okay. You know, I don't like crowds. Like I'm not a concert goer. I like a crowd if I'm on stage. We did the the Simpsons at the Hollywood Bowl 3 years ago, 4 years ago, and 18,000 people sold out. I'm absolutely at home. Sign me up mm. all day long. Mm-hmm. But if you want me to go to I went to an Emmy party a couple of weeks ago and I couldn't have been more nervous and felt more out of place. Mm. And I will find my footing again. I will talk to the person next to me and say, so what's your name and what brings you here and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it takes everything to even get me out of the house. Mm. And I feel like that's gotten worse and I don't know what that's about, but
0: Mm. I don't know. Is there kind of a comfort then to being on a show that's run for 30 years and you know episodes probably aren't going to have like devastating endings? They might have bittersweet endings. Yeah. Like, you know. (laughs) I think it's more that
1: I, I have a real love-hate relationship with routine. Mm-hmm. So I love having some place to go and some place to show up and people to show up for. At the same time, I'm easily bored. Mm. So I really have to, I'm always trying to, Make up new things, which is part of why the podcast came about, which is a lot of why the production company came about, which is why I did have a shoe line for five years. You know, I sort of see something, I think, I think I can do that. I had absolutely no professional design experience when I was doing shoes. But I knew what I liked and I knew what worked. I have lots and lots of clothes and I didn't have any shoes that were beautiful and comfortable enough to carry me through my day and I thought that was stupid. (laughs) So I thought I could be part of that solution. So again, like I'm not the smartest person in the room. I will gather, I will explain what I want and with pictures and, you know, like, paper dolls to a designer. This is what I am looking for. She will then render those. We will then go to the factories in Italy and they'll make them and I will correct them and I'll put them on my feet and I'll say, that looks well, that strap is too thick, it's too thin, whatever it is. And so I like to fly by the seat of my pants that way. Mm. Um, But I rely on the expertise of the shoemaker to say to me, well, that won't work because it will break or it's uncomfortable or whatever. And so the collaboration is really, really, I thrive on that, is Mm -hmm. really meaningful to me.
0: You mentioning uh, being recognized for The Legend of Billie Jean made me think. When you are recognized for non-Simpsons roles, yes. like what comes up the most often?
1: Uh, Legend of Billie Jean, uh, Herman's Head, and Maximum Overdrive.
0: Interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those are three very different I know.
1: <laughs> Once in a while, um, City Slickers. Okay. And I also get this, like, oh my God, you're somebody, aren't you? And you're like, oh, it's my worst. It's my least favorite question because there's no good answer. <laughs> um, and then you say, yes, I'm an actress. And they go, what have you been in? And then you start to list your resume and they're like, like, no, 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 that's not no. And you're like, God, ah, this is torture, it's torture. <laughs> um, I would say city slickers, I think, uh, once you remind them and you say, I was in Sol- city slickers, you're like, really? Yeah. What? And you go, I'm the girl who says she got pregnant in the supermarket aisle. I'm like, oh, you know, so sometimes you have to prompt the memory, but unprompted, Legend of Billie Jean, Maximum Overdrive, and Herman's Head. And Maximum Overdrive, we just, I think they just released the DVD with commentary, which I said I would participate in. So there's been a lot of um, Twitter love there.
0: The guy, uh, Tom Wilson, the guy who played Biff in the Back to the Future movies, has oh, like yes. a little card he hands to people with like the answers to the questions oh, they my ask God, him. That's genius. So they can just like look at I And mean, then he's like written a song out of the answer to those. It's, it's, it's on YouTube. You should look oh, it up. It's great. I'm so
1: going to look that up. I may have to steal a page.
0: <laughs> you've, uh, you've worked with James L. Brooks yes. on a few things, and he's like a great hero of mine. I, I love his work. Tell me about kind of like what you have learned from working with him.
1: That. Excellence has no time limit. Mm-hmm. When I did as, as good as it gets... The scene where—so I played Greg Kinnear's assistant, and there's a scene where he's been beat up, and I go visit him in the hospital. And the scene is written where she starts a line off camera, says uh, something like, Hey, hero, how you doing? And then walks into the room, sees him, and bursts into tears. I am not an actress who can cry on cue, mm. so I was really, really nervous about this day. And we were also shooting in an old abandoned hospital, so that it wasn't— a set where they could move walls and move the camera in any kind of angle that they could. It was very, very limited space. So, and I tell you that because we ended up doing that scene all day. Wow. Like all day, Mm. 12 hours. I cried for 12 hours. Mm. And I had to keep myself in a space of semi-distress for the entire day, which isn't really my M.O. I'm such a people pleaser that I'm not the girl who's going to, you know, be playing a bitch on a film and then sit down at lunch with the crew and still be a bitch. (laughs) That is not what I'm going to (laughs) do. So I had to actually say to the woman who was my dresser on that, I just want you to know that today's going to be a really rough day and don't talk to me too much because this is what I need to do. But I need to forewarn you, right? I just, I didn't want her to, feel like it was her and you know what I learned was if you think of emotions as being on a complete circle Mm. Jim will start at the top of the circle take you all the way around all the way around try everything 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 end up back at the top of the circle and go okay that was great Mm. so you can end up feeling as though I think he's really unhappy and he doesn't like what I'm doing, when in fact, he really, I think he feels like, oh, there's something here, and I just want to see all the options. What are all the different flavors that I can get out of this one, you know, entree, so to speak? Mm. And so, once I realized that he considered that a collaborative process, even if I found it debilitating, it was a really good lesson Mm -hmm. that... My process isn't the only process.
0: Mm, mm. Well, we're kind of coming into the end of the show. And I do have to ask your relationship to the other cast members of The Simpsons. Yes. Like, you're the only people who know what it's like to be in this <laughs> thing. So how, like, how does that develop? I realize you don't all, like, hang out. I know That's true. But, that's like, true. you have that thing in common that you're all part of this.
1: Yes. And it is without question, despite the fact that we don't socialize at all, really, there is – And always has been such respect for what each person brings to the process. And I stand, so we record all together like an old radio play, Mm. which is very unusual for voiceover. Mm. When The Simpsons did a crossover episode with Family Guy, I went and did all my lines by myself, isolated. I never met uh, Mila Kunis, Mm -hmm. and so, who does Meg. But that's much more usually the way voiceover is done. So we do it all together, and I stand between Dan and Nancy, and... I can tell you, I could take a lie detector test today, and I would come up as truthful when I tell you that to watch Dan go from voice to voice to voice, to have complete conversations just with himself, Mm -hmm. with different characters, never gets old.
2: Hmm.
1: And I have been watching it for over 640-some episodes or something. It is pure delight. It is cover your mouth so they don't hear you laugh when it's not your turn. And uh, same with Nancy, you know, and my feeling is that the the advantage of doing it all together in a room, obviously, is that the way you say something to me is going to inform the way I respond. Mm. So it makes complete sense to me. And I think because James L. Brooks, he comes from sitcom, right? So he was like, "Well, I don't know why it'd be any different. Doesn't mm. matter. Nobody can see you on camera. It's still a sitcom." Yeah. So of course you should all be in the same room. Of course you should be like a conversation. That's what we're gonna do. So <laughs> that's how that started. And um, I think those of us who are in that room all the time. Wouldn't give that up for anything.
0: Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you those (laughs) questions now. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And the first one is, who is the actor, living or dead, that you've learned the most from but that you've never met? Oh.
1: Meryl Streep, probably. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Why do you say that?
1: I think that she's so game. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's also incredibly skilled. Um, And her willingness to throw herself into whatever has led her to actually agree to do that part is inspiring. And I feel like she has a freedom that I strive for.
0: Mm -hmm. Sort of next, do you like to watch your own work? Do you like to watch your performances? Whether whether it's Lisa or whether it's like when you've been on camera, do you watch?
1: I don't. I don't okay. listen to interviews. I don't read interviews. I used to. Mm-hmm. And it was... Um, harrowing. I love actually watching Lisa Simpson. Interesting. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. watch Lisa Simpson. I'm so charmed by her. I find her so funny. And then I'm delighted that I am 33 and a third percent of that little being. Mm. And I think, oh, I am so proud of that. (laughs) But I remember going to my, the very first film I did was called Heaven Help Us. Mm. And I played a, a Catholic girl there was, it was really about a Catholic boys' school, and really everybody was in it. You know, Kevin Dillon, Patrick Dempsey, Mary Stuart Masterson, uh, Kevin McCarthy, all these guys, and I played a girl at one of the Catholic girls' school. And I remember going to the premiere. I did. I go to the premiere. I can't remember. Anywho, I remember going to the movie and seeing myself on screen and going, oh, my God, my posture is so bad. (laughs) And I was mortified. I was so slouchy. And after that, I vowed ever after to stand up straight unless (sighs) specifically the role called for slouchy slouch.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But you also see yourself on camera at angles that you never see yourself in real life, right? and that's
0: harrowing. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. So I just just don't. I'm going to cross acting off the list of things (laughs) I want to do. (laughs) Uh, And finally, uh, this episode is going up in October, and our question that we're asking everybody in October is, what's your best costume, Halloween costume, or if you were on set and you were in a costume, but what is your favorite costume you've worn in your life?
1: Well, best and favorite are different. Sure. Probably the best costume I was ever in. Um, We did a remake of Journey to the Center of the Earth, Mm -hmm. which I don't think really ever saw the light of day. (sighs) And I played a creature under the earth. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. And so I was in makeup five hours a day, but it was so low budget that I wasn't like, they didn't have me in a dentist chair where I could sleep and they could slap shit on my face for hours at a time. (laughs) I was sitting literally in a metal folding chair. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And I would nod off and the makeup artist was like, Yardley, you got to keep your (laughs) head up for God's sake. And uh, I was unrecognizable in that. Um, (laughs) So that was probably the best. But my favorite costumes are always the ones where I get to look really pretty. Okay. Um, I always thought the one thing I don't have in my wardrobe is a tiara, Mm -hmm. that I I very much need that. Who doesn't? Um, Just saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? I had a great, really expensive wardrobe in As Good As It Gets.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it wasn't clothes that I— really wore like it was a lot of suits but they were from France and I didn't know any of those designers but I was like oh yeah this shit is good <laughs> so that was nice and I tried to buy some of those they're like no no you may not so
0: <laughs> somebody out there is going to make their ringtone you saying oh yeah this shit is good <laughs> <laughs> well, have at it <laughs> the podcast is Small Town Dicks and the show is The Simpsons Yardley Smith thank you for joining us
1: thank you so much for having me this was really fun
0: Remember, you are. I think you're interesting. But I am Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of the show. And thank you for another great week, everybody. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our editor is Griffin Tanner. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering in our studio this week are thanks to the Rebel Talk Network of Los Angeles. And our recording engineer was Ernie Hurtado. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. Wherever you find podcasts, it helps us get the word out about the show and continue to attract great guests. We're going to get like all the Simpsons at some point, you know, if if you make that happen. We're two out of four. We're going to make it happen. You can email me, Todd, at Vox.com. You can email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com. And you can tweet at me at TVOTI to We are going to be back next week with somebody else from the world of arts and culture, media and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. And until then, at, at least one of you has to make Yardley Smith swearing your ringtone I I brought it up and now it has to come true so please do it and I don't know tweet about it or something so that we know you actually did it we'll see you later Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste.
1: Oh yeah, this shit is
3: good.